Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. The scripture for this morning is Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Verse 39, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Brad. That very kind introduction. I'm grateful for you, brother. Let's pray again real fast. Father, we're grateful for your word. I pray that you would come now and help me preach your word, uh, that you would come and be my strength as uh, I talk about who you are and who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done for us. Would you come now and send your spirit to help us receive your word and to have your word take deep root inside of us. Father, we all come before you today in one way or the other in places that are weak, in places of great need, in places of hurt, in places of sadness, grief, uh, maybe anger, and so many other things that we experience as human beings. So would you come now and help us and be our refuge and our strength and use your word for something really good and that you'd use your word for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I want us to begin our time together by having us consider a question. What if our suffering is actually meant to be an expression of our faith instead of something that contradicts our faith? What if our suffering is meant to actually be an expression of our faith instead of something that contradicts your faith? That may sound simple enough, but there's lots of ways that we as Christians demonstrate that it's actually really hard to believe this. So for example, sometimes we talk about making a decision and we're trying to discern what does God want me to do, uh, what God is leading us to do. And so we say something like, you know, I, I think this is the right decision to make and I'm trusting God and I know I think it's the right one because I felt a peace about this decision. Have you all ever said that? I've said that one. Now, I do believe God at times does grant us real lasting peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding like Paul says. But often before when I've said that phrase, this is the right decision, I'm trusting God and I know that because I have peace about it. 
Oftentimes when I say that, what I'm implying is that my faith in God is confirmed because I, I'm not struggling in any way and I feel happy or I feel serene. I have the absence of any kind of emotional turmoil. In other words, we can feel assured that we're doing the right thing, that we're putting our faith in God because we're not hurting in that moment and we feel good. Here's another example of what I'm trying to get at. How often do we rush to tell the grieving person first things that are true about God? Have you ever lost someone really important to you, lost something really important to you, and you have a, this awkward kind of exchange with a Christian, and the, the first thing they say, they, they kind of blurt it out. They say things about God that are true. Well, you know God's in control. You know God's going to work all things together for good. We all do this kind of thing. And lots of times we do this, we say this quickly to suffering people because we're really very uncomfortable with other people's pain. And we don't know what to do with their pain. And we're hoping that we can avoid other people's pain by stating something very quickly about God that's true. So again, the idea here is that faith and suffering, oftentimes we think, don't really belong together very well that they're incompatible in some way. Many years ago in college, I read Karl Marx, because that's what you do when you're in college, right? You read Karl Marx, uh, the infamous architect behind communism. Mr. Marx once wrote something that I still remember to this day. He said, you know, religion is really just opiate for the masses. Religion is opiate for the masses. Basically, he's saying that religion is a a mass-produced pain pill for lots of people. And when I first heard that years ago, it, it confused me a bit. I don't think I quite understood at first what he is, is saying. But the older I get, the more I think old Karl Marx is making a pretty good point. That for many of us, religion is meant as something that we use as an attempt to escape the harshest parts of reality in a fallen world that for many of us, religion is the means by which we're trying to avoid our pain and get away from it and deny it or downplay it in some way. And we do this, all of us, myself included. Sadly, for many of us, religion, even Christianity, we can reduce it to just ideas that we're using to run from our pain instead of our faith being something that actually deals head-on with the hardest parts of our life. So what we're going to see today in God's word is that biblical faith really gives us a a very different picture from how we often experience and think about suffering. And we're going to see that faith and suffering are not incompatible. They're not opposed to each other. They can actually go together hand in hand. So today what I want to do is I want to look at Jesus, the personification of perfect human faith, the one who perfectly demonstrated what does it mean to trust his heavenly father in the places of his deepest pain. And again, we're going to see that Jesus' faith was not some serene, blissful experience where he trusts God and he feels great. But instead, we're going to see that the faith of Jesus included this experience of actually entering into the depths of the heart of human anguish. And so Jesus' faith demonstrates for us the shape that our own faith should take as human beings 
who have to do the same things Jesus did. We have to trust God while we suffer. We have to face a fallen and broken world where all kinds of things come our way that we plead with God to not come. All right, so today we're going to look at three different aspects. I want to talk about three different aspects of Jesus' faith that we see in this very memorable scene on the night of Jesus' arrest and betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is probably a very familiar passage to us if we've been in church for any period of time. And again, I want us to see that each three of these aspects of Jesus' faith involve a struggle of some kind, uh, ways that involve suffering. So let's turn our eyes now to the passage that Brad read just a few minutes ago. This is in Luke chapter 22. Um, and look at, we're going to look at this profound prayer. It's a short prayer, but I think a lot is happening for us when Jesus prays this short prayer in verse 42. If we read the gospel narratives, it's actually, it's very rare. We don't have hardly anything that Jesus prayed with the exception of a few places in the Bible. And this is one of the places where we actually hear the content of what Jesus really prayed. And so this should grab our attention and make us listen closely. Uh, It's interesting that every gospel writer gives us this same scene. All four gospels have, have this scene on the night of Jesus' arrest and betrayal. And aside from the cross, this is really Jesus' greatest hour of suffering and struggle, the night where he knows what is going to happen, how a very close, trusted disciple will turn against him, how a mob of very religious people will come to him to take him away, lie about him, and have him killed. So for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this scene involves this overwhelming emotionally painful moment where Jesus turns to his father in prayer in the midst of his deep, deep agony and suffering. Uh, In John's gospel, in the 17th chapter, we get a much longer prayer, but Matthew and Mark and Luke have a pretty similar passage uh, that we read today. So in our passage, Luke says that Jesus prays this. He prays, Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So if you read this passage, again, with the other gospel writers, you see this very intense emotional scene. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus tells his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Mark says that Jesus became greatly distressed and troubled. All right, so what exactly is Jesus saying in this very brief but very remarkable prayer of his? This is the first aspect of faith I want us to see. And this is really at the most basic level, we see that Jesus' faith is an expression of desire. Jesus' faith is an expression of desire. So there's a few things here I want us to see. First, we see this poignant display of Jesus' humanity, don't we? As he prays to the Father, that the Father is willing, he says, please remove the cup from him. Now, the cup that Jesus is referring to is an image that's used often, often throughout the Bible to refer to God's judgment and also to the experience of deep suffering. So, for example, God tells his people Israel in Isaiah 51, 17, he says, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Same idea in Psalm 75, for in the hand of the Lord there's a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, 
the dregs is the stuff at the, at the bottom of the cup. So this verse tells us something you see a lot in the Old Testament, that really it's the wicked who are made to drink this cup of God's judgment, God's wrath. And it's not only judgment and wrath that the cup's talking about, but it's also talking about deep pain, deep suffering. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 20 when he tells James and John after their mother requests that they be elevated to these positions of power in Jesus' kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, uh, are you able to drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? What's he talking about? He's talking about deep, deep suffering that he knows James and John will undergo as they continue to be faithful disciples of Jesus. So in our passage in Luke 22, we see Jesus expressing his desire to be spared, the agony of suffering that is going to come uh, when divine judgment comes to him on the cross that he soon knows he's going to undergo. It's clear from this part of Jesus' prayer that the coming cross is going to fulfill the words of Isaiah, that God's suffering servant will be numbered with the transgressors, as Jesus talks about a few verses before our passage. So Jesus understands what's coming, the coming agony that before him, the agony of the Son of God, the righteous one, suffering the judgment that God reserves for the wicked so that we as God's wayward people could be reconciled to the Father. I just find it incredible, don't you, that Jesus prays this prayer, Father, if possible, let the cup pass. Think about the fact that this was Jesus' entire earthly mission was to take up this cup of suffering on the cross. We likely heard maybe in the last few weeks in the Christmas season the story of when uh, the angel comes to announce Jesus' birth in Matthew's gospel. And he tells Joseph that he should name him Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. So we know that at the very beginning of Jesus' life, before he's born, it's clear what the mission is. Uh, to give his life, to take up this cup, to give his life for the sins of his people. Jesus says again and again throughout the Gospels that his mission must involve the suffering and death of the cross, how he as the Son of Man will give his life as a ransom for many. And yet there's, there's a mystery here, isn't there? That in the mystery of the incarnation, we see the Son of God wrestle with the mission that the Father gave him by pleading with the Father to please, if it's possible, spare me. Spare me this cup of suffering you've given me to drink. And so Jesus' cry to the Father not only involves being spared the suffering of his mission of bearing the terrible judgment for the sake of God's people, but I think Jesus' request here also can be seen as an expression of some of our humanity's deepest longings, some of your deepest longings, some of my deepest longings, that we would be free from pain, that God's creation could be free from suffering, that we all have to go through throughout this life. Jesus' request is an expression of the groaning that all of us experience, all creation experiences, ever since the entrance of evil and sin into the world. But once again, isn't it incredible that Jesus comes right to the edge of fulfilling his climactic mission, and he struggles here, and he pleads with the Father to please, if, if it's possible, to spare me from the pain. And Jesus appears to flinch on the night of his arrest and betrayal, just a few hours, right? A day or so before he's crucified and killed. He appears to struggle with taking on this terrible burden of suffering 
that the Father has appointed him to carry. So listen, people of God, this is a simple application here, but I think it's a really important one. It is not a lack of faith for you to pray that the Father would spare you from your pain. Jesus was not deficient in any way for doing this, and neither are we, neither are you, when you plead with God for the pain to stop, for there to be another way uh, for us to go forward. We can so often give in to the devil's work of putting all this guilt and shame on ourselves when we suffer by thinking, I should be stronger than that. I should be better than that, than to have to come before God in such weakness and cry out to him, Father, please, is there another way? When we suffer, we so often think that we have, have to be strong, right? And it's just a lack of faith. There's something spiritually wrong with us. But again, people of God, what I want you to see is that if Jesus cried out to his father to be spared from the suffering and the pain, that was a, cru- a crucial part of his earthly mission, then you don't have to be ashamed either of your cries out to God for pain to stop, that you'd be spared from suffering. Praying to be delivered from our suffering, it can be done from a heart of faith. And Jesus shows us how this is possible. And so Jesus shows us that faith involves voicing our deepest longings and desires as humans to God. But again, we struggle to do this, don't we? This is, this is really hard, even though it sounds simple. It's hard to be honest with yourself or God or others about how just deeply you long to feel relief from your pain. And what we do is that we, we assault and we hate even our own God-given humanity when you shut down these good desires and longings to be free from your pain. And of course, what we are subtly proclaiming when we do this is that we think we are more spiritual than Jesus by suppressing your deep longings and desires for comfort and relief when you suffer. We think faith means I won't have to feel the pain of desiring to be free from my suffering. And what I want us to see is that evil is always in the business of, of manufacturing, manufacturing despair for us. And a big part of despair is wanting you to shut down desire as a way to protect yourself from pain. Uh, but the comfort despair promises, it, it never really gives you what you want, does it? Listen, running from your desires for comfort, it won't make life hurt any less. But what it's going to do is it's going to make you less human. And doing this moves us away from the kind of humanity that Jesus wants you to embrace. And so it's vital that we see that it's Satan and evil really who want to shut down your desires for relief from pain and destroy yourself with all this shame for your longings to be free of the pain and the suffering that God has placed on us. Evil's work will always involve you trying to get to forsake this truth that God's design for your humanity involves honestly voicing these desires and longings to God, to other people. And if we try to avoid or banish these deep longings that we have for comfort and relief from our pain, you know what happens? Well, Satan and evil exploit this and come to you with a whole host of things that's going to give you a poisonous, counterfeit form of comfort and relief. And I would say that's what the heart of all addictions are really all about. 
Okay, so Jesus prays this prayer in Gethsemane. He's asked that the Father, uh, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. So how does the Father respond? What does he say to Jesus? Uh, Well, he says nothing, doesn't he? And And I think a lot about the book of Job here. When you read a lot of the book of Job, what strikes me is that God is silent through most of the book. He comes in the end and he speaks. But I think God's silence here is really deafening. It's very powerful. That Jesus, the Son of God, cries out to God the Father for something good, and the desire of his request goes unfulfilled, doesn't it? And people of God, we know what that's like too, don't we? We know what it's like to come to God in prayer and say, Father, I long for this. Will you please grant this? And the, the thing doesn't happen. These desires go unfulfilled for us. What we often face, uh, what we must learn to face in the Christian life is that so many of our good desires, they will never be perfectly fully fulfilled in this life. And we must know what to do with the deep frustration and that feeling of futility that comes as a result. When you come to God just like Jesus and you, you pray for these deep things you long for, and we get a divine no uh, in the face of these desires. Some of you uh, have deeply uh, been harmed by others. And what you long for is for the person who harmed you to even acknowledge it uh, so that you can be reconciled to this person uh, through repentance and and reconciliation. When I see a lot of my counseling work is that all of us have these deep longings in our families, don't we? And my, my own family and then our, the families we grew up in, we long for our families to not feel so broken. Some of us maybe grew up with parents that harmed us or abandoned us in ways. And many years now, even as an adult, you still have to carry that pain. Others of us long for good things in our marriages, maybe. We long for our spouses to grow in certain ways so that we can experience deeper one flesh union. Others of us have these deep longings for a spouse or these deep longings to have children of our own and we have to regularly face the deep pain and we feel the bitterness of when these good desires go unfulfilled. If we were to start listing all the things that we long for, all all the good desires that we have that go unfulfilled, we could be here a long time, couldn't we? And like Jesus, at some point we experience the deep pain of the divine no from our Heavenly Father. And so what we see in our passage is that Jesus shows us how do we hear a no from the Father and respond in faith and not bitterness. He teaches us to be honest about what we deeply long for and then how we can entrust and submit our desires into the good hands of our Heavenly Father. Our sinful flesh wants us to grow hard towards God when you experience the frustration of having these good things go unfulfilled. And in that place of pain, we can become angry people and callous people and hard people. We can become people consumed with our pain and we can begin to believe this terrible lie that maybe God just isn't even trustworthy at all. We're gonna get to the second half of Jesus' prayer in just a few seconds, but for now, what I want us to see is that Jesus believed that submitting his desires to his Father was the only way forward in faith in the midst of his suffering in the midst of this profound experience of frustration. And Jesus is willing to trust that his Father's will is what he will follow and what he will trust, even if that means I have to suffer 
as a result and have these, these good desires that go unfulfilled. Okay, for the sake of time, let's move on in our passage. Jesus uh, teaches us that faith involves this expression of desire. What else do we see in our passage that we read? Well, the second thing I want us to see is that faith also includes a cry of weakness. Faith includes this cry of weakness. What makes us so uncomfortable, what makes me so uncomfortable about this passage is that God incarnate, the Savior of the world, the one through whom all things were made, is someone who presents himself before his father as a person who is weak in some way, someone who is in need of his father's care. And this passage of, uh, gives us this vision of humanity of Jesus that, again, we may find this unnerving. I find this a bit unnerving, that we see our Savior exhibit his humanity, mostly in this passage, in his weakness. We can see Jesus demonstrate his weakness in several ways. Uh, we first see it in the first half of Jesus' prayer when he honestly pleads with his Father that he might remove the cup of suffering from him. You also see this enormous mental and emotional anguish, don't we, that demonstrates the weakness even of his body. But Luke says that he sweats and he sweats so much. His body is so overwhelmed with the pain and the anxiety of this moment that Luke says it looks like he's bleeding out. Jesus is sweating so much. Luke tells us that an angel comes to strengthen Jesus in this moment. Again, the angel comes to strengthen Jesus because he's weak in a very profound way. And this is one of two places, actually, in the Gospels where God sends angels. The Father sends angels to Jesus to minister to him in the midst of his struggle and his weakness. We see this here. You also see in the temptation narrative as well. And the rest of the scriptures tell us really the same idea here, that Jesus' humanity shows itself often in weakness. The writer of Hebrews says that in the days of Jesus' flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And again, I, I find that incredible. Uh, I'm convinced that for a lot of evangelical people like ourselves, it's really not Jesus' divinity that we have the hardest time understanding. It's his humanity. The fact that the infinite God, the eternal God, took on weak, finite, frail human flesh, just like the flesh we carry. So we have to see that what the Bible teaches here is that a fundamental aspect of your humanity, that you will never escape this, is that you are weak. Think for a few seconds about how we come into the world. How does virtually every human being start off his or her life? Just seconds after uh, we exit out of our mother's body, what do we do? We cry. We cry out because we're weak. Our little hands reach out because we're weak and we're in need. And people of God consider that no one teaches human beings how to do that. You come into this world knowing that you're weak and that you're in need and that you need help. But we hate this truth, don't we? We despise it. And we do so many things to try to run from this and avoid it and deny it. We spend so much of our life trying to escape the fact that you are a weak human being who is frail, who needs God, who needs people every day of your life. And so what we do after we, we grow out of infancy is that we deceive ourselves into thinking 
that now we can grow strong enough to become something other than a human being. People who are inherently weak and must depend on God and others. So when we look at who Jesus is in the Bible, we'll see that Jesus understands and embraces what it means to be human far better than we do. He is very comfortable and at peace in his own skin, isn't he? But we are not. We do not like being human beings. We work so hard to be something other than human. We think we should be stronger in the face of our weaknesses and our struggles. And again, we just load ourselves up, don't we, we? with all this guilt, all this shame, just for being a human being who is weak, who has needs every single day. Here's a, here's a good easy example of this one that we see this all the time. Have you ever cried in front of someone and you find yourself instinctively apologizing when you cry? Even with someone who loves you and cares about you, right? Someone you, that you know for a fact is your friend, your spouse, uh, someone who really loves you. Why do we do this? Why do we apologize for crying? Well, it's because so many of us have equated weakness with something that is shamefully wrong. And we so often listen to the voice of evil that loves to shame you for not being God, for being a person who is frail and finite and weak. Evil wants you to attempt to be something other than, uh, than a human, a person who doesn't need God and who depends on no one other than yourself. So people of God consider this. What would it look like for you uh, to give yourself permission to be a human being like Jesus? What would that look like? To be someone who is weak without shaming yourself or viewing yourself as just inherently bad because I need help, like all the time. (laughs) To be someone who embraces a Christ-like dependence and neediness. Okay, so we've seen faith is an expression of desire We've seen faith as a cry of weakness. Here's the last thing about faith that I want us to see in our passage that Jesus shows us. Faith is also a submission of our will to the Father, a submission of our will to the Father. And this is what we see in the second part of Jesus' prayer. So after praying to the Father and requesting that he, the Father removes this cup of suffering from him, Jesus prays, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When we think about this statement of Jesus in the, the wider context of the scriptures, we can see that Jesus' submission to the will of his Father, again, was his entire mission from infancy uh, through the resurrection. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, and Paul tells us that though, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus' entire life, and especially his death, was this act of submission to the will of his Father, even if that meant denying himself and undergoing deep deprivation and suffering and struggle. So faith for Jesus looked like him submitting his desires to the will of the Father, And you see this even in Jesus' final words. Think about the last things that we read Jesus saying as he dies on the cross. It's an act of submission to his Father when he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the crucial pivot that we have to be willing to make while we drink from the cup of suffering that the Father gives us. Will you drink of the Father's cup of suffering while entrusting yourself and entrusting your deepest longings and desires into God's hands. 
What I also want us to think about in the second half of Jesus' prayers, that Jesus submitting his will to the Father, notice it doesn't look like this immediate experience of inward tranquility and peace. Do you notice this? So his body poured sweat over and over again. It looks like he was bleeding to death, Luke says. And that happens after he prays. Not my will, but yours be done. So notice Jesus does not pray to his father, not my wills, but yours be done. And suddenly he is filled with spiritual bliss and he's happy and all the anxiety goes away and there's no pain anymore. So what does that tell us? It tells us there are times in the Christian life when trusting God, submitting yourself to God, submitting yourself to what he has for you, it's still gonna involve deep struggle and pain and anxiety and that is okay. Like I mentioned earlier, we often assume faith and painful struggles are incompatible, but Jesus shows us it's just simply not true. Trusting the will of our Heavenly Father sometimes may not actually take away the emotional anguish. Putting our faith and trust in the Father's will for our lives, it gives us a direction to go towards in our anxiety. But faith, again, does not have to be opposed to all the emotional angst and anxiety and pain that we feel. I want you to see that our anxiety can be actually an expression of your human weakness. And it can be expressed as this constant cry to God for help. This is what Jesus shows us how to do. In our passage and plots of other places in the scriptures where we're told to take your anxieties to God. That's what we read in the scriptures over and over again. People of God, if you will listen to what your anxiety says, you can see that it actually reveals something really true and important about who you are, that you are a human being, that you are weak, and you are not self-sufficient. And if you can embrace that anxiety as the soil where your faith can grow, then we can grow into people who trust God even more than we trust ourselves, and we can cry out to God in the midst of our anxiety instead of seeking to bury it or avoid it, or our favorite thing to do is distract ourselves from it. All right, we've talked this morning about how our faith can be an expression of suffering and not the means by which we avoid pain. We talked about Jesus' very human prayer that gives us a great model for how we can pray and even how we can live as human beings, how we can express our deepest desires to God and how we can submit ourselves to God and even drinking uh, the cup, right? The various cups that God has for all of us. And because we've been united to Jesus, we too will drink from the cup of suffering. It's not the cup of judgment for sin, right, that Jesus drank, but it is a cup of suffering that all of us know something about here. But as I close today, the final thing I want us to see about our passage is that the cup of suffering is not the only cup that our Father has ordained for you to drink. Jesus' own life teaches us that the final cup that you will feast on, it will be another cup. It will be the cup of eternal joy. This will not be a cup that is bitter to our souls. It's not going to be a cup that we plead with the Father to be spared from. This cup will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. 
This is the cup that Jesus refers to when he does the institution of the Lord's Supper. He tells his disciples that he will not drink of the cup again until he drinks it anew with us in his kingdom. People of God, the Lord Jesus has drank the cup of God's judgment on your behalf so that you can be assured that whatever cup you have to drink now, we drink as beloved children of God who are always welcome. You are always welcome at the Father's table. And the Lord Jesus is awaiting you. He's awaiting me to join us, to join him in drinking this final cup that we will all drink together, this cup that Jesus has started, but it's one we're gonna finish with him in all eternity. This is the cup that will turn all your sorrow and all your suffering into joy, joy that nothing and no one will ever take away from you. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.